From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. When I was in second or third year university, I applied to like every single med school in Canada. I got rejected from every single med school in Canada. And every Thanksgiving, I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't get accepted because I would have just gone. You know, I would have just done it. And it, who knows how long into it I would have realized I didn't want to do it anymore. So this week on What the Jub, we're talking with U of A grad Isha Dattar about the world of cellular agriculture and fundraising. Isha is the executive director of New Harvest, a nonprofit research institute that supports cultured meat research. Isha talks about how a random class at U of A got her interested in cellular agriculture, how she transformed research from her undergrad and master's into a career in the nonprofit world, what it's like to run a nonprofit, and how a major celebrity came to be one of their supporters. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash alumni. So what's your name and what's your job? My name is Isha Datar, and I'm the executive director of New Harvest. Can you tell me a little bit about New Harvest, who they are and what they do? Uh, so New Harvest is a nonprofit organization, um, and we are completely funded by philanthropy. And our goal is to uh, create a world where we can eat foods that were grown from cell cultures rather than from whole plants or animals. And specifically, we're focused on growing meat in cell culture. And... Uh, you know, the way that we are tackling that problem is by supporting a very cool network of researchers all around the world um, who are doing this very groundbreaking research. And I know the focus is cellular agriculture. I read about that uh, before we started this interview. And I was wondering if you could just tell me, like, what is cellular agriculture? I understand it's like growing meat in labs, but uh, it's got to be more specific than that, or maybe it's not. And um, I just wondered about the evolution of it. That's great. And I'm going to try and not talk forever about this because I easily can. Um, but to summarize, I think we've done so much with animal agriculture such that it is so optimized that now we're seeing some negative externalities come out of it. And what I mean by animal agriculture is so optimized is if you compare a cow or chicken or pig um, from this year to one from 50 years ago, it it's producing way more eggs, way more milk, way more meat than their equivalent counterpart did back then. And that's because of breeding. That's because of what we feed them. It's a, about a lot of different things. Um, and also we're keeping them in much closer quarters than we used to keep animals before. So the animals are growing very fast and they're very high density. And what happens with that is we see these externalities like, you know, the risk of antibiotic resistance growing, um, the risk of epidemic viruses spreading throughout animal populations, um, animal welfare considerations, of course. And we also are just existing in a climate changed world. And the, the paradigm that we created for farming is not really that um, flexible in the face of climate change and in many ways is very risk prone. So, you know, we see 
these, you know, slowly changing climates can lead to stressed animals, hot animals, animals that don't breed as well or can't grow as well because of just like temperatures they're not used to dealing with. But we also see these like events that happen overnight, like a snowstorm in Texas um, or a flood that actually wipes out tens of thousands of animals overnight. And that that hasn't happened so many times in recent history, but it's happened enough times to to be a real food security threat. Um, and I mean, there's more I can go on about here, but I think at the end of the day, what we need to do is diversify our protein portfolio. You know, I think of factory farming today as coal mining, like it's very dangerous and dirty, but it gets the job done and serves a lot of people and feeds a lot of mouths. Like we cannot deny that, but we're really like bought all into it. And I think COVID has even revealed that there are some cracks in that supply chain you know, when we see these um, meatpacking plants having widespread infections amongst workers, you think, you know, why why are these factories being much more affected by COVID than in other factories? You know, these just interesting things come up. But the problem is when those factories stop working, people are not getting food or the price of food is going up, you know, 300%. And that is a big problem. So what cellular agriculture aims to solve is to add some diversification to how protein is produced. So I don't necessarily think we are headed towards a world where we never farm animals. Um, I think we're headed towards a world where farming animals produces some food, plant-based protein produces some food, cell-based protein produces some food. The products that we consume are probably combinations of all of those things, maybe even other things that I dare not imagine on this phone call. Um, but that that diversity creates resilience and creates a more secure food system. I think it's, um, you know, I actually watched that video uh, of you doing a talk where you show that chicken from 1950 or whatever and the chicken today. Yes. And it's kind of fascinating. And I think also you noted in there and or something that really struck with me is that we've kind of already been genetically modifying meat for a long time now. Like if you think about how we've, we've bred uh, animals specifically, um, we've kind of already been doing that. So... That's kind of fascinating as well. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because genetic. So this world is very filled with conversations about terminology. Like what do we call cell cultured meat? Is it cultured meat? Is it in vitro meat? Is it lab grown meat? All these kinds of things. But, you know, you brought up genetically engineered and some people would say this is not genetically engineered. Others would say, yes, it is genetically engineered. And it reminds me that there's aspects of food science and technology that we also don't really have great terms for. Like a geneticist is going to think about how we genetically engineer food differently than a consumer, than a regulator. Um, so anyway, that's just an interesting thing you bring up. Well, I think it, this is a good point to finally go back to talking about careers um, because, you know, <laughs> you have a background in science, obviously, right? U of A and U of T. Um, but now you must wear many different hats in this role um, leading a nonprofit. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how you got into this work and why you chose this field? Yeah. So I was doing a biochem cell bio degree at the Faculty of Science at the University of Alberta, having a great time, but feeling like my only career paths were in healthcare. Because I think a lot of people by all the background think they're going to become a doctor or a nurse or a researcher in some medical related thing. Um, and I have a lot of 
people in healthcare in my family and I did a couple job shadows and thought, I don't know about this. I don't know if this is what I want to do. Um, but I, so I actually was hanging out at the greenhouse at the U of A, which I was so disturbed is not there anymore. I, I went back and visited a few months or something ago, or, or wasn't operating when I visited recently. But I used to go hang out in that greenhouse because it was like the only source of humidity like on campus in the, <laughs> in the winter. And I saw a poster on the wall for a meat science class. And it was, uh, yeah, meat and meat processing, 400 class. So it was a graduate level class. I was, I was a fourth year student just kind of with a spare. And I thought, hey, this is biology. Like, why am I not learning about food? Like, that is su such fundamentally biology and biochemistry and cell biology. Um, but I had to, you know, go to another faculty to experience this class. So I took the class um, and it just changed my whole view of everything. My professor, uh, Dr. Mirko Betty, who is at the U of A still, who is wonderful and very future forward, probably the most like inspiring of all professors. Um, he you know, told us about the environmental impact of meats like one or two classes in and I was just blown away thinking, oh my gosh, all this time I was like kind of mad at the oil and gas industry and thinking how on earth are we going to completely change the infrastructure of cities uh, to be more sustainable when actually food is one of the biggest sources of environmental impact. Um, and that's not as much of an infrastructure problem in the same sense, like we could just, you know, change the way we eat or things like that. Um, so of course I am immediately thought we all have to become vegan tomorrow. That's the only way, but you know, I've, I've never been the activist type. <laughs> so that lasted for a very short period of time. I thought, you know, that's not going to happen. There's thousands of people around the world who do believe that's going to happen. And I haven't seen a big enough change to be really, you know, inspired that behavioral change towards veganism is like a real meaningful way to move forward. Um, so it kind of just, I was just wrestling that with that for the rest of the class. And then, um, in passing one day, the, my professor was like, and maybe one day we'll, this is like five minutes at the end of the class. Maybe one day we'll grow food from cells. And I was like, what? That's, of course we'll do that. And, and it, it was, I think my interdisciplinary experience that gave me the ability to see how cool that was because. I was a kind of misplaced faculty of science students sitting amongst animal scientists and nutrition scientists and veterinarians and other people from the ag department that I could say, hey, yeah, I'm learning about this in my other classes, like tissue engineering, you know, how to grow cells for all these medical purposes. Why don't we grow it for food? Um, it's different scale and slightly different pressures, but it's at the end of the day, pretty much the same thing. And we, we are doing that just, you know, not for food. Um, so I'm sorry if this, this story seems like it's going on for quite a long time. It's a great time. story. Keep going. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so please feel free to interject. But um, it, so we came to the final term paper of that meat science class, and our professor asked us to write about the future of meat. So obviously, I was going to write about uh, in vitro meat, as he was referring to it then. Um, my peers wrote about things like aromatherapy for pigs and consuming insects and stuff, which is also very cool, but gives you a sense of like the, the level of interdisciplinariness that was, you know, needed for me to write that paper because all my citations were from medical journals, tissue engineering, 
journals, um, but written in a food context, which is very uh, interesting and unique. And um, I worked on this paper. I was became obsessed with the paper, reading tons of stuff about it, um, and and actually heard about New Harvest in my research. So New Harvest was already a formed organization, but it was pretty low key, you know, a landing page website with with some links on it and uh, an email address. And so after my term paper was submitted and sent, you know, done, um, I actually sent it to the New Harvest website. Uh, the executive director at the time is named Jason Matheny. And he emailed me back and he said, this is an awesome paper. And he CC'd like half the scientists I had cited in my paper. So suddenly there's this peer review happening of my paper, just like in my U Alberta, you know, bear tracks <laughs> email thing. Um, is it called bear tracks? Whatever the email I mean, it's, was called. Bear tracks is still a thing. So. Okay. Bear, okay. Whatever the email thing was called, it was in there. Um, and I had to send Jason an email on the side saying, you know, I'm just an undergrad student, like just letting you know. And he's like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Like you should, you should publish, publish this paper. It's really important. There hasn't been you know, a ton of literature that's very focused on this area. Um, and you've done a great review. And the reviewers were saying, you know, they were treating me like a peer, which I thought was incredible because they were professors and they didn't ask me where I was from or how old I was or what degrees I had or anything. They just kind of took the work for what it was, which really inspired me because I think sometimes academia can feel like this ivory tower and that ivory tower like crumbled to the ground in, in, you know, quote unquote bear tracks. So um, we, so I, I actually did work to submit the paper. I went back to Dr. Mirko Betty and said, you know, these people on the internet told me that I should submit this paper. And he's like, okay, let's do it. Um, he's like, you can be my grad student. I said, well, I don't know if I need to be a student because the paper's already written. So I, I actually was working somewhere totally different um, while cleaning up the paper and putting it through peer review. Um, and we submitted it to a food science journal, which was very cool since a lot of the citations had nothing to do with food science. And that paper came out and it remains today to be a, a very kind of important first place to start paper if you want to get a sense for what cultured meat is and how it is produced. And um, it was uh, very influential because it was the paper. So in 2018, the FDA had a meeting on how to regulate um, cell cultured meats because a lot of companies have emerged over the past five years and this paper was their only citation so I was very proud to see it you know 10 years later like truly being used in the world um, so yes papers matter that's amazing <laughs> I love the happenstance that went into that story being in a greenhouse just happening to be there seeing the ad for the course taking the course the, the five minutes that happened at the end of a class just randomly saying something that triggered all this. Yeah. And I think that's one of the amazing things about a university experience that that, that one prof can make a big difference in, in the way you go. Speaking of the way you go, it this sounds like you could have just kept going in research, right? You could have gone, done a PhD, yeah. maybe been a prof somewhere, but uh, that's not the direction you took. Yeah, honestly, I really did want to go in that direction. And my parents were like, no, you don't want to become a researcher because you're going to spend all of your life asking people for money and like being dependent on money. And little did they know I'd be someone who would be asking me for 20 research, you know, for many more researchers than myself. But anyway, um, 
I love it, I guess. I'm, I'm surprised. I didn't think it would end up this way, but um, you know, you talked about how my, how my data J has changed. Cause I, even though I'm a science grad, I'm not that close to the science anymore. Um, and now I'm kind of a fundraiser most of the time. And my approach to fundraising is kind of like party hosting. Like it's, you, you just find out who wants to join you for this like cool journey and ride and you form partnerships and they're very relationship based rather kind of than transactional based. And so it's, it's really fun feeling like we have this team of people who are driven by the same goal, working to together, kind of contributing what you can in this stone soup kind of way um, to make this science a reality. I'm curious how you decided that you wanted to get involved with the fundraising. Was it just like a passion for the cause itself or like, how did, were you like, you know what, what's the story behind, I guess you getting involved with new harvest other than what we already know. Right. Okay. So I ended with the paper. So what happened after that was I said, mom and dad, I'm going to become a researcher. And they're like, no, you're not. And I was like, okay. Like I, and actually to be, to, you know, to their credit, I did do a little bit of research over the summer in my professor's lab and it was a huge disaster. I'm not really set up to, to exist in a lab. I have enormous respect for people who are laboratory researchers, but that wasn't for me. So um, I actually went on to do a master's of biotechnology at the U of T, um, which is a really interesting program where it's kind of like an MBA just focused on biotech, which is largely pharma medical devices oriented. But it's a, it, you're not in the lab. It's a very businessy kind of thing. And you learn a lot about the relationship um, you learn about regulation, you learn about nonprofits and academia interacting with for-profits. It's a very cool uh, program. And I applied to that program and actually told them I wanted to, you know, pursue growing food from cells. And they're like, oh, that doesn't, ha that doesn't happen. I don't think we have any internships on that. And I was like, I know, <laughs> don't worry about it. And they're like, you would be into agriculture being from Alberta. I was like, is this an Ontario thing that you would say that kind of thing to me? Anyway, it was, um, it was an awesome program. And um, uh, another kind of funny story was, so I, I went through the program. I worked at uh, GlaxoSmithKline for my internship, which is kind of half of the program. And I knew I wanted to exit pharma like three months into the year of my internship, just because I was like, I cannot imagine sitting here every day. And I looked at, you know, the VP of my department. I was like, that guy's cool, but I don't want to be him. Like, I don't want to live the life that he's living. Um, and meanwhile, New Harvest was looking for an executive director for like years, at least a year. And I was just refreshing seeing, you know, who is the executive director going to be? And I was keeping in touch with some of the kind of researchers in the space. And one of them, LinkedIn messaged me, I said, and, they, and I was like, Have, do you think they found a ED? And they're like, why don't you apply? And I was like, I don't know anything about nonprofits or like, most things in the world they're like that's okay like no one no one knows anything really if you think about it like <laughs> I mean what is there to know if to be the ED of like a field that doesn't exist and you know um on a topic that like two people have ever written about you know you you kind of are an expert because it's such a new thing and and that's something that has actually carried me forward a lot is that it's very easy to actually be the, the most knowledgeable person in the world on something because there's so many things to know. And um, so I applied for that job. And after I applied, I realized that 
I had no plan B, like this is the only thing I wanted. And I could not imagine what would happen next. I remember at GlaxoSmithKline, they're like, so, you know, are you going to apply to work here? Like, we really like you. And I was like, no. And they're like, what are you going to do instead? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) And I think that that was very, um, I I think they were pretty surprised to hear that. Um, But I was, I was very focused on this job and I really wanted it. And so uh, I ended up getting it after meeting. So actually, oh no, I have to step back a little bit. Um, this is a funny story that speaks to the boldness of like being an early twenties person. I would never do this today, but back then, uh, TEDx Toronto was like one of the biggest TEDx's in the world and they were looking for speakers. And I was connecting with this guy named Andrew Hessel, who was actually also from Edmonton and perhaps went to the U of A, but I can't remember for sure. And I had just a catch up call with him one day. He's like, what are you up to? And I said, oh, oh, I applied to speak at TEDx, but I don't know if I'll get it because I'm just like some person that showed up in Toronto one day. And um, he's like, oh, they actually asked me to speak, but I can't do it. So maybe you can take my spot. And I was like, oh, that sounds so crazy and amazing. Like, please, yes. And so he gave me his spot. He should he should do a, one of these podcasts with you guys if he went to the U of A. Um, he, he's a really interesting person. Um, so I, I was talking to the TEDx people and they're like, well, what are you going to talk about? I said, oh, this cellular agriculture, growing meat from cells stuff. And they're like, well, why should you talk about it? I was like, well, I'm, I'm pretty much going to be the ED of this organization. And I wasn't the ED of the organization yet. I had just applied and was like, had no plan B. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be the ED of the organization. And when I applied for the ED, I was like, I'm pretty much going to be doing this TEDx talk. So I told both parties that I was going to do this thing when actually neither of them were confirmed, but thinking that I was doing the other thing. And it all worked out in the end that um, I did end up doing both of those things. But I remember going to my, um, uh, I I did the TEDx talk and then I got an interview uh, with Jason Matheny for the executive director position. And uh, we met, uh, he, I went to DC to meet him. We met in a coffee shop and my TEDx talk came out that very morning. Um, so he was able to watch the TEDx talk before this interview. And in, in a way the interview was like very relaxed because he had seen that talk. And so it, it all worked, the timing all worked out in a really lovely way. And I only told him about that story like a few months ago and he, he laughed at it. But <laughs> um, I'm very happy to be sharing it here. Sometimes especially when you're a young person, you don't have like things on your resume yet. Sometimes you have to kind of put things on your resume and it, it, it does pay off in the end. You have to take a little bit of risk, I think. Yeah. It seems like there has to be some hustle to it. And also, I mean, you know, what, what's the worst <laughs> thing that could have happened? I mean, I don't know. You, yeah, you do exactly. one, but not the other. It seems like it wouldn't mix. You talked about uh, partners and fundraising. And uh, I really wanted to talk about this because I saw a video with Robert Downey Jr. talking about New Harvest. So I was wondering how Tony Stark got on your radar. Yeah, that is a great question and one of the highlights of 2020 for me. Um, So Robert Downey Jr. started a new foundation. I mean, he's been doing philanthropy for a long time, but he started a new foundation focused on technologies related to climate change and correcting um, a lot of problems related to the environment. And we had been in touch for maybe a year or so, you know, they were hashing out details. I felt really privileged to be 
seeing this coalition firm uh, kind of form. And yeah, they decided to support New Harvest. We're their, the Footprint Coalition's kind of first official grant. Um, and they're focused on supporting research related to the safety of cultured meat, which is very cool because, um, you know, this technology is moving forward really quickly. There's a lot of companies in the world that want to put products on the market, but there's not a lot of research to demonstrate safety and actually like help with the regulation piece. And so it's, yeah, it's cool to have a little bit of celebrity energy behind the cellular agriculture cause. I'll put the video in the show notes so that people can see it because it's great. And it does a good job of really painting, you know, what the issue is, what the challenges are and what's happening and how we can get involved. And he's super charismatic. It's incredible. So. Well, I just love the alignment of, you know, thinking about, you know, global disaster in a fictional scenario and then thinking about it in a real scenario. And um, there wasn't a ton of press around our involvement with him directly, him or his foundation directly. But, um, you know, we for the safety initiative, we had to round up, you know, 50 cellular agriculture companies, all really small some small, some big startups all around the world, like literally all over the world on these like Zoom workshops during the pandemic. And we were very lucky to have Robert Downey Jr. grace us with like a couple minutes of um, just like encouraging words to say, you know, we're all in a pandemic, we're all separated, but we're doing really awesome work that really matters in the world and is very much needed. So yeah, it was a big energy boost for last year. I'm also curious because the way you've talked about your career journey, you know, we talk about timing and the sort of serendipity of things. Um, but I'm wondering if you ever felt at any point that you were stuck, that you didn't know where you were going, um, or was it always a momentum carrying you towards this place? Yeah, there. Yeah, no, I've definitely felt stuck. Um, I moved to Toronto before getting into the Masters of Biotech program. Um, for example, and there was a year I just like worked at this like chemical manufacturing company. And it was kind of like a weird year, just waiting around, not sure what I was going to do. Um, Living on, you know, out of my parents' house for the first time. And looking back, I'm surprised I wasn't like more depressed or anything. I think I was just like excited to be riding the streetcar around and stuff like that. Um, no, I've definitely felt stuck, but you know, sometimes those moments of stillness are really clarifying and really help you connect with yourself and what your values are and help you kind of sort out your life. It's easy to get lost in the rushing around and uh, meeting people all the time. And I've, I've kind of had a similar, um, reaction to the pandemic. You know, I've, I've been here in Edmonton just embracing the stillness and the, the ability to be very intentional um, so even though it's a, it's a pause and a stuck, uh, I don't know, it's nice to kind of use the brain space. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I would never want to say that pandemic is good. It is not. Let's be clear. That's my <laughs> official stance. Pandemic is bad. But um, it, it's interesting how it has caused us to rethink so many things. Here we are all working <laughs> from home, for example, uh, but also the way industries yeah. work, as as you've already noted. So that's really fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. One thing I also wondered about, mm-hmm. just because I imagine we have listeners who are interested about working in nonprofit and what that's like, or working in fundraising and what that's like, I was wondering if you could just talk about some of the skills you've had to develop or learn or the things that maybe you already had that really help out in your job. 
That is an awesome question because I've only really been thinking about this in the past few months. Um, and I don't actually think the fundraising comes from anything academic that I've ever done. I think it, you know, I, growing up, I used to be the person that would host the part. I don't even think of myself as like very popular person at all, but I'd be the person like, yeah, you, everyone can come to my house. Um, and, and I'd be the host and a, a big part of hosting is not making it about you. It's about everyone else and the gratitude of this party only happened because you were there and you were there and you were there and we, and you brought that, you know, bowl of chips and you brought that thing and this thing. And I think that that facilitation leadership of being the room host, making sure everyone feels good is, is key to fundraising um, and is key to building a movement is really celebrating what everyone contributes and not making it about yourself. And um, that just come from that just, I mean, my husband is a musician, producer, DJ. So he's definitely a party person. And so we've, we've done a lot of parties together as well. Um, I'm sorry. I just, I just got distracted for a second because I'm going to show it to you since you guys are U of A people, but we were both on the cover of the gateway. And this was our Christmas present this year. Oh, that's cool. He, just so because people can't them. see it. That's two framed uh, gateway covers. <laughs> that's really awesome. Yeah. You take this is the, this is the one of the Ted ish. Actually, it's called Pecha Kucha Talk. I did the U of A, and this is my husband. I can't remember where exactly. And you take the U of A uh, with you, I guess. Uh, yes. Both in this skills. Yes, yes. That's pretty awesome. Um, but just also <laughs> to go back to the question for like, if someone is like, I really want to get into working in nonprofits. Is there anything that they need to know in advance, or is it just a vastly diverse field? It's a vastly diverse field. I think you have to be, you have to, uh, okay, at the end of the day, you're talking to rich people. And I think some people can be very intimidated by the prospect of talking to rich people. Um, but there's a lot of really great guidance on fundraising. And I'm especially inspired by this book called The Generosity Network by Jennifer McRae, who has just an awesome approach to fundraising that is very much about relationships and very much about you know, a philanthropist wants to give to something like they, it is a transaction in some way because they want to be part of something that they can't generate themselves, which is a, a movement or work or art or contribution contributions to science and culture. And, um, you know, asking for money from a philanthropist is not the same as asking for money from your friend to buy groceries. You know, it's a completely different type of thing. Um, for people wanting to get into nonprofits, I, I do have to say, I mean, we are a 501c3, which is a US-based nonprofit. And I do have to say that nonprofits in Canada versus the US are pretty different ball games, um, just because there's so much more like wealth inequality in the US. Uh, you know, unfortunately, philanthropy is the result of uh, wealth inequality, and that happens so much more there. So you know, getting a really crazy nonprofit off the ground like New Harvest is a lot easier in a place there because you can rally together, you know, 50 people who could actually carry an entire nonprofit for a while. And you've never heard, you know, they're not famous. You've never heard of them. Whereas here, I think the, the giving landscape's a little bit different. There's a lot of established nonprofits that everyone knows and gives to, like the Long Association and so on. Um, and I think we have less of a 
crazy nonprofit environment because our our government like does stuff that you know like is good <laughs> like when i learned that planned parenthood was not government supported just like not a government thing i was like this is the most insane thing so it is a little bit of a different bag i mean it, it's not going to be easy to start new harvest in canada from scratch um but the good thing is in some ways everything is global now and if you set up shop and think about a global audience out of the box you you would be amazed at how much you can get done. So I think that's what I just put forward. It's kind of like being, you know, someone on an Etsy shop that has a thousand followers or someone, you know, with a, you know, you don't actually need that many people to do really great work in the world. You don't need that many people supporting you. It's, it's surprising, but that's kind of the world we live in. All right. I think uh, even though I could keep talking to you about, this amazing field of cellular agriculture and your <laughs> your incredible career journey. Uh, it's time to go to the lightning round, which was sponsored by our affinity partner, TD Insurance. I'm just going to ask you questions and you can just off the top of your head, whatever comes there, you can go ahead and answer. I ask all of my guests these. Have you ever been fired from a job? Um, no. <laughs> <I don't laughs> very very few people have. You're not alone. <laughs> Um, it's sometimes we do, uh, come across a couple of people who've been fired and they're very proud of it, but not many people have. I was just going to say, if I would love to have been fired from a job, I think that those types of things really have an impact on your life. And actually this is not that, but similar. Um, I, when I was in second or third year university, I applied to like every single med school in Canada and got rejected from every single med school in Canada. And every Thanksgiving, I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't get accepted because I would have just gone. You know, I would have just done it. And it, who knows how long into it I would have realized I didn't want to do it anymore. So, yeah. Uh, the last interview I did was with uh, a woman named Jacqueline Cardinal, and she said a great line that I love, and it's, uh, failure is a big part of my process. And I was like, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing to remember. Yeah. That's awesome. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I think I told people I wanted to be a doctor because my dad is a doctor and everyone around us is doctors. So, um, I think that may have been my line, but I don't really remember strongly feeling. Did you, when you started university, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? No, I think, you know, to speak to the quote you just quoted, I think I had a better sense. I had more clarity around what I didn't want to do than what I did want to do. What's something you wish people knew about what you do or something people don't understand about what you do? Um, I think one thing that is very core to what I do is for lack of a better word, this party hosting thing where half of it is just knowing a ton of people and introducing them to one another. And like, it's the part, the party is a metaphor, but like a movement is kind of a party. It's a group of people who are kind of all in one thing together. And a lot of what I do is just like, oh, you should meet this person because X and Y and Z, and you should connect with this person. And this is this opportunity. And it's really hard to put that into a job description, but I feel like it's really at the core of what I do is um, caring personally about people and connecting personally with people. 
What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't in this job? I tell people I would be a potter, but I think that's more of an allergic reaction to a fast-paced life. And today, you know, being one year into pandemic, I don't know if I would say I'd be a potter. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about your job? My favorite thing about the job, hands down, is the people. Um, I love my team so much. I love all the researchers that we support. I love all the people in our supporter network. And I just love hearing people's stories and how, how we all kind of came to one point. And that's our point of connection. But beyond that, everything is so divergent. Yeah. Personal stories for me. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself just after you graduated, what advice would you give yourself? Um, so I would give myself the advice that someone, a friend's parents gave me a few years later after I graduated, which is, you know, I came to them, I said, I feel like my life's so scattered. Like, I don't know what I like, like, it feels all divergent. And like, I kind of like this, I kind of like that. And they said, you know, just trust the process. Like you can, you are actually already on a path. It's not that you're searching for a career path. You are on the path already. It just doesn't look like a path. And one day you'll look back and it will look like a straight line. But right now you just, it's, it, it won't feel like that. Like the universe will move around you such that it will all add up. And I feel that today. Like I look back and like actually every single thing that I experienced did add up. Um, even the things that I thought were totally random. The last one, in respect to your education, your career path, your work right now, is there anything you wish you had done but didn't? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a person that like lives that way thinking about what could have been. So I don't really have a good answer for that. I think that's totally fair. It's a yes or no question. So you could say <laughs> yeah. no. Uh, no, yeah, no. <laughs> Isha, this has been a great experience for me. I've loved interviewing you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. This was super fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job, and a big thanks to our guest, Isha Dattar, for chatting with us about her career journey. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca sboard. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's it for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.